Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub. I'm John Alois and I'm joined by Sean Degenhart. Hi there. And John Redling Schaefer. Hello, hello. You know, we like to start our show off with our Disney views. And this week, let's kick it over to John for his. Thanks, John. And really, I'm looking to our listeners for some help this week. Um, so often, we come up with some fun topics, some serious topics, historical, music, doesn't matter. But we want to look to our listeners and never be shy about what you may be thinking of or for a show idea or what we haven't covered. Uh, just so you know, coming up, we are looking at a few fun topics. Um, what's your favorite mode of transportation at a Disney park? What food must you have when you go to a Disney park, whether that be a restaurant or at, at the theme park? Or even, and this has been a, a contentious point between a couple of us here, Mr. Alois thinks you should go a certain direction when you go into the World Showcase, and he is 100% wrong. It's just that simple. Uh, and so we'll, 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 take a, we'll take a quick gander around the World Showcase in the way you should go um, in a later episode. But for right now, I think just kind of for way of a teaser, guys, what food must you have when you go to Disneyland or Disney World? What, what's always on your list? You want one item or hey, just kind of the this list? This is your this is your list, man. Go okay. go with what you want. Okay, this is this is this is the quick list. Mickey bar, pretzel, the red velvet cupcakes are fantastic. A steak at the Grand Floridian Cafe, taco from Pecos Bills. You got to get a hot dog from Casey's. Hold on, hold on. Pomegranate <laughs> lemonade and Mickey waffles. You were ready for this. Goodness gracious, <laughs> we're not going to have enough material for the show. Hold some of that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, I love how he started with treats because that's the first place my mind went as well. It's Charles in Disneyland and it's uh, Dole Whips in Walt Disney World for me. I had my first turkey leg at my last trip. That was that was a meal or a couple meals in and of itself. Yeah, that's that's something. I can't do that. I, even the thought of that. I didn't finish it. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, we want to hear what you think. What are your favorite food items when you go to the Disney parks? Email us at podcast at com or send us a voice recorded message. Well, guys, I'm so excited. Our guest for the show is part of the Diz Unplugged Network. I've been a listener for the Diz for over a decade, so I've been waiting for this interview. We're so excited to welcome the host of Connecting with Walt, Michael Bowling. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the Hyperion Hub. Congratulations on the launch of your great show. I enjoy listening to it. Thank you. That's that's awesome coming from you. And I'm sure you understand the background and the significance for the name Hyperion, of course. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The Hyperion Studios. Michael, this is a unique history, Disney history show that you have. Tell us about uh, connecting with Walt and how you came up with the idea for the podcast. Gosh, that goes way back to when the Dis Unplugged had a Disneyland show. And it was an audio show. And I started out as a listener. I was just a fan of the Dis. And I started writing articles for the Dis based on the Walt Disney Family Museum and sort of what was going on there. And then I was asked to um, 
come on the Disneyland show. I don't know. They must have had a hole in their schedule to talk about their Snow White exhibition. And I did that. A couple weeks later, I was asked to come back on the show. And Tom Bell, who was the host and producer at the time, he said, okay, we want you to fully participate in the show. And he told me exactly what I needed to prepare for. And I told my wife, Carol, I think I'm being auditioned, but I'm not sure. And so I fully participated. And by that time, I knew everybody on the show. I was friends with all of them. So it was just sort of like old home week. And I, so I did my thing. And Tom thanked me. And then a couple weeks later, uh, yeah, I didn't hear anything. He contacted me and said, before I go to Pete Werner, who's founder and one of the owners of the DIS, he uh, said, before I go to him, I want to know if you would like to be a full-time member of the show. And I said, sure. And Pete approved it. Um, then the 60th anniversary of Disneyland came along. So I started a series on the 60 years of Disneyland. And that caught the attention of a lot of people, including the people that listened to the flagship show of the Diz, um, the Walt Disney World show. And they said, we would like to hear the history of Walt Disney World. And so Pete and I got together, we talked about it and Connecting with Walt was born out of that. And I said, but I don't want it to just be about Walt Disney World. I want it to be about all things Disney. And so it started out as a um, event podcast, as we called it. And it came out four times a year for one month. And we, uh, and with, that ran for a year and it was, it exceeded expectations. And then Pete said, okay, fine, and it's going to be a weekly show. And luckily, and Craig was my co-host and producer who has a vast knowledge of Disney history. And, um, and we, we just clicked, mm-hmm. you know, right away. He's younger, so he has a, his, he has a lot of Disney knowledge that um, really complements my Disney knowledge. Because I, I call myself the old man of the Diz. I'm the <laughs> oldest one in the Diz. I first visited Disneyland when the park was two years old. Wow. Uh, wow. I've experienced most Disney history, <laughs> <laughs> at least where Disneyland's concerned. Is that where the passion started for you? I think it was. I always joke that because I was one year old when I first my family took me to Disneyland and I always said, you know, like when Peter Bell flew across the park, I must've gotten some of that pixie dust in my bloodstream <laughs> because yeah, I was a, a Disney fan my whole life, really. So that's how Connecting as Well was born, a very long story. And we're, I think we're heading into, we're getting into our fourth year now and just continue to grow. I have to say the, the deep dives that you guys do, on the show are just remarkable and you mentioned the hyperion um name well one of the first actually one of the first episodes i ever listened to was back in 2017 when you talked about the hyperion studio so i knew and and i knew i had to go back before that and sure enough i mean talking about marceline talking about just so much and so deep uh, the analysis is just fantastic i have to ask do you have a favorite person you've interviewed uh, related to the connecting with walt show Oh my gosh, that's hard because we've interviewed so many different people. But I'm also afraid to say it in case somebody's listening. And I have <laughs> Fair enough. Fair I, enough. You know, everybody is a joy. And I'm so humbled 
that they agree to be on the show. And then I have my list of people I still want to be on the show. I want to have on the show. Sam, there's a couple I think they're probably now at that stage in their life, they're not doing interviews anymore. Uh, but, you know, Roly Crump was a delight, absolute delight to have on the show. So when you have somebody like that who worked with Walt on the show, that is special. You know, we've had Bob Gurr on several times. So that's, that. they're just a league of their own. I just saw Roly. I was in preparation of, Hall- of uh, Halloween. I watched that, uh, what was it, the Tencennial Disneyland show on, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And he goes and talks with Roland, as he calls him, about the, uh, he, he kept forgetting, Walt kept forgetting that it's the Haunted Mansion. He's with the House of Illusion. Yes. And, yeah. so, <laughs> he did. And that's so funny. Roland? I want you to meet Julie Reams. She is Miss Disneyland Tencennial. This is Roland Crump, who for the project here is sort of acting as the interior decorator of a uh, a house of uh, illusion. What do we call it? Mark, I want you to meet uh, Julie Reem. Mark Davis. Julie is uh, Miss Disneyland Tencennial. And Mark Davis is the uh, master in charge of our house of illusions or uh, uh what do we call it uh, a haunted mansion haunted mansion and uh, and uh, supernatural there's a story behind that whole episode there was a script for it and they had cue cards ready and everything and walt immediately went off script <laughs> and, and nobody knew what he was going to say i mean you could even see julie reams the Disney ambassador didn't even know how to react a couple of times to him because she wasn't prepared. And, you know, Marty Sklar, when I talked to him, you know, he said, you just try writing for that man <laughs> because it, you never knew what Walt was going to say when he was, you know, in front of the camera. And that was a classic episode where Walt, Walt just ignored everything that had been prepared for him. And you're right. And, and, and because he wasn't going by, the, he was off script, he completely forgot the name of the attraction. Like several times. <laughs> yes, yes, multiple times. And Marty Scalar was just gritting his teeth. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering if you've got anything special prepared looking ahead to um, Disney World's 50th anniversary next year, if you have any special projects. I'm sure we will. <laughs> the thing is, we've been doing, we've been covering Walt Disney World really since our first episode mm-hmm. when we talked about what was Walt's vision for Walt Disney World and then how it became what it is today. Uh, you know, right now, you know, we did the whole history of the Magic Kingdom. And, you know, when I research that, I am in such awe of how they took the muck. <laughs> and the swamp that was there and what it is today. It, it's amazing. And it was the largest civil engineering project in the history of the United States at that time. And it, and then um, right now we're covering the history of Epcot and we're up to Horizons, the Horizons Pavilion right now. So I on that day, I don't know, because it's almost like we covered the actual event already on the show, so I haven't <laughs> thought about it yet. Can you talk about some of the extensive research? I mean, you put so much into every episode. I don't know how you do it, because it's almost like writing a book 
you know, per episode. How do you tackle that on a weekly basis and have that much material? Hmm. It's not easy because I have a full-time job, which also a lot of research is involved in that as well. And, uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, my wife who passed away. It, when you listen to those early episodes, I basically her as my lovely research assistant. <laughs> yeah. She did a lot of the online research for me. And then I have books everywhere. There are libraries in most of the rooms in this house. <laughs> and, and I have a, I have a fairly good sized home. I plan ahead. I have a whole spreadsheet of the year. And I never thought I'd get to the point where I'm reading four books simultaneously, <laughs> which I do. And I just switch back and forth between them. I'm reading two right now because we're doing a Halloween series as we record this episode. I don't have a lot of free time. And I love gardening. And even I'm even sometimes listening to things as I garden. It might be soundtracks to things or it might be videos that I'm listening to that are history videos or interviews I'm listening to as I garden. Um, I read every single day and um, weekends I read a lot. And then, and then it's doing the online research. So if I'm done with my day job, then I'll, I'll do, I'll put in time researching before I make dinner or do wow. chores and things like that. We all love to be entertained, but you guys, um, as you're saying, as you're talking about, when you do your digging and your deep dives, uh, you're fair and you're sharing your opinions. Um, but before you do that, I feel that you truly try to educate yourselves. It might be a silly question for a history podcast, but how important is the truth? Because you know, we, we can skirt over certain things or, or we can try not to cover certain things. But I think the truth is important. I think you do too. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And usually if I can't verify a fact from three different resources, sometimes it'll be two if I already know it's true. I don't use it in, wow. in the show. Uh, also, I... Craig and I, you know, you've listened to the show. We, we don't do this what would Walt think, or we don't like to speculate on what was Walt thinking unless it is really educated. Because, you know, we've interviewed enough people who worked with Walt, or, I, you know, or I've spoken with, I've sat down and spoken with Marty Scalar a few times, where even the people who were closest with Walt had no clue what he was thinking. So that's why there is a... Um, in some circles, there's a very well-respected biography on Walt, a very heavy <laughs> biography of Walt. And there is so much speculation in it that I don't respect it. And neither did actually Diane Disney Miller. And she refused to carry it in the Walt Disney Family Museum mm -hmm. and was appalled that it was being sold in the parks and, uh, and shared her feelings with Bob Iger. That's why I didn't care for the American Experience um, mini um, documentary they did on Walt because there was so much speculation in it. And um, there, was, there were a lot of good film clips, though. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, very so, rare film clips, correct. Yeah, getting at the truth is difficult. That's why writing about post-Walt is also difficult uh, doing shows because everything was done by committee then. And not as much was documented. 
So it's so much harder to research on post Walt because everything with Walt, everything went through Walt. Mm-hmm. Walt was the decision maker. If you ever see that org chart, yeah, that somebody did at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's available online and stuff. Where everything, you know, Walt was at the top, and everything went around him. Well, once he was gone, it was it's so much harder to find out how are things created, what was the thought process, and there was no character you know there are no more not as many humorous stories mm-hmm. you know tony baxter at least he he sort of carries the torch now now that marty's gone for a lot of the humorous stories how the attractions were created and and the history of them so. i think there was so much stress placed on everybody who was left you know, because they went, they rolled right into Walt Disney World, and then they didn't know what to do. They, they were trying different things with films, and mm-hmm. and nothing was really hitting the way it once had. And you know, they kind of lost their way for a little while, and then they they found it again. They did. But it is frustrating. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say, as a Disney, as a guy who studies Walt as well, it's frustrating to see people say things online like Walt would be rolling in his grave, or what would Walt think. Yeah. Walt evolved so much from nineteen from the nineteen twenties to the nineteen sixties, and there were people who were so close to him who didn't know what he was going to say. Who knows what he would have accomplished, you know, had he kept going? So, oh yeah, because Walt loved technology. Mm-hmm. Walt was a, a realist, um, even with the heartbreaking layoffs that are happening now as a result of the pandemic. When you go back in history. After every major project, whether it was a film or a theme park attraction being built, there were layoffs at the Walt Disney Studio. And some of them, as I researched, um, I'm doing a lot of research on the early days of animation right now, um, because we're doing a history of animation Mm -hmm. as well. We have a series on that running. It's shocking some of the people that we revere nowadays who created those early films were laid off sometimes a couple of times and it, it happens so sometimes you have to be careful not to put a halo on walt as well so who knows what, what walt would have done he might have changed his mind about it caught the city as time went on we don't know we have no idea right and i think when you've got a big group like that suddenly living in walt's shadow nobody wants to be the one to make the decision, you know, they want to have the <laughs> the cover of this was a group decision, so that you know they're not they're not sticking their necks out on the line. Sounds like Congress, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they they rolled they rolled for years on Walt's projects that were already in motion or already been planned. Yeah, and when they got to that moment, when suddenly they had nothing, and they had to start creating their own things that's when we that's you know in those late 70s that's when we sort of started to see okay things look a little shaky right now yeah the 70s the 70s and 80s are just fascinating i i was just saying how i so appreciate the balance that you guys do on the show of you know trying not to put words or, or thoughts in, in Walt's mind or, or, or voice, yet also explaining the legacy at times. You know, there are multiple episodes where you mentioned CalArts, and I absolutely love when you will go into that to show how big of a community advocate he was, especially for the arts. And, and so 
while not doing what we you know don't necessarily want to do um, you still have a wonderful way of explaining what his legacy is outside of disney as well absolutely he left a significant part of his estate to cal arts he wanted to see that go that was literally that was one of his dying wishes was to see cal arts built and and to see epcot continue but cal arts was the big one he wanted to to nurture um, artists in in every area, not just animation. And he, he really wanted that to be his legacy. That, and he wanted to be known as a storyteller. Out of everything that he accomplished, he wanted to be remembered as a storyteller. I also want to compliment you, Michael, on what you guys do in addition, you know, you wear many hats, even for the Diz. Um, I think, I believe, uh, on uh, multiple episodes, you mentioned your, his, your, you know, your past as an educator. And during this time, I have to thank you. Um, I know there were a few, ep- you know, I, I, formal episodes, maybe the wrong word, but you spent time and your, and, and there was a Diz board actually on this topic, your calming, soothing voice reading stories. Uh, my kids loved it, and it was just a wonderful break from the stress and, and, and pressure that even a child is feeling during these difficult times. So I, I, I just feel like that the public or our listeners, however you want to say it, really doesn't fully appreciate what you guys do at the Diz and you personally uh, for not just Disney fans and the Disney community, but, you know, during tough times, you're, you're that calming presence, and we appreciate that. Oh, thank you. That's very kind, very generous of you. I wish my co-host and producer Craig could be here. They're having a, an outage, a power outage where he is at the moment. But he's the one who wears many hats at the Diz. Um, yeah, we are bringing back Storytime with Michael. We're very excited. It's going to be in a different iteration. And we actually have members of the Connecting with Wolf family are involved in it. We have artists who are contributing artwork, so you're not just looking at me. <laughs> and um, and we even have a composer who's going to be writing background music for the stories. And we're taking it a little different direction because we don't have to worry about copyright. Right. Um, we are going to read the original stories, and which are not under copyright. The original fairy tales, which probably... I would say majority of people have not heard the originals. Mm-hmm. We only know the Disney version. When I was getting my teaching credential, I had to take a course. It was it was on sort of, the, let's just say, the mythology of children's stories hmm. and the psychology of children's stories. And I was the only one in the classroom that had ever read the original stories. So after I read the stories, then the originals, then I'll tell a little about how Walt adapted them. Or film. Walt did significant adaptations in order to make them a little more family friendly. Disney fied them a little bit. <laughs> yes, but I'm not reading the Grimm Brothers versions because <laughs> they were grim. <laughs> I was going to say, I may rethink my younger children watching that episode. Yeah. Now, I'm reading the ch- mainly the Charles Perrault versions okay. because, because there are like, people don't know, there are different versions of Cinderella, of Sleeping Beauty, of Beauty and the Beast. And some, and they were all morality tales. Uh, they were all meant to tell children a lesson. And some, they hit, they hit the children over the head with the lessons. <laughs> they would give them nightmares. Perot was a little um, more gentle in telling his stories. <laughs> and Disney did base, like Cinderella is based on the Perot version. 
Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Craig is located in central Florida and you're located in uh, central California. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that that lends a unique perspective uh, to the show? Absolutely. Because, and there's also a significant age difference between Craig and I. So, and that also is a difference, mm-hmm. which is great. And then because of where we're located, I'm more of a Disneylander. And Craig is a Walt Disney Worlder. So we come at it from different perspectives as well. So uh, we, we lean on each other for um, that information a lot of times. Although I went to Walt Disney World when I was you know, a teenager. So I remember a lot of attractions that Craig wasn't born for. You know, <laughs> Walt Disney World as well. You know, you got to see both of these uh, theme parks when they were glistening, brand new. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. not, that, not that they're not well kept today, but uh, everything was fresh and new. What was the biggest difference? I mean, what did you feel when you walked into the Magic Kingdom? It, it felt it must have felt so sprawled out. What were some of those big differences? The size, absolutely the size. You know, and like. I think it was really Crump that said, when you walk into Disneyland, you feel like you're being hugged. And because Disneyland has that forced perspective, so you really feel surrounded by Main Street. Whereas the Main Street in the Magic Kingdom, because remember, Disneyland was built, there was already a, a town around it. You know, Anaheim was there. So whereas at Walt Disney World, there was no support environment so the magic kingdom is is regular size because they need to have offices and things like that so there are offices on the second floor of the of main street and all that so it's a little different walking in there i don't you know i didn't the first time i walked in there i didn't feel that intimacy also you do feel and i know this is cliched but you do feel walt's presence at walt is at disneyland it's that intangible feeling that's hard to describe if you haven't been there. But just the enormity of it, whereas, you know, at Disneyland, you can, if you're in Frontierland and you want to see what the line is like, well, this is before, you know, everything there were the apps, you know, you wanted to see what the line was like at Space Mountain, you just ran across <laughs> the Central Plaza, not at Magic Kingdom. I mean, that's a hike <laughs> to get over there and see. But then I love the facade of the Haunted Mansion. It's magnificent, and it's so large and foreboding. You know, with that brick, we don't have brick in California because of earthquakes. So I just thought it seemed much more frightening than ours at Disneyland. And I love Liberty Square. It's my favorite. It's funny. New Orleans Square is my favorite land. At Disneyland, Liberty Square is my favorite land at Walt Disney World, the Magic Kingdom. I also love that the, the submarine ride at the time looked like the Nautilus. Mm-hmm. And whereas, you know, ours had to look like the General Dynamics subs because they said, we're building them. They're going to look like our submarines. And they built them like their submarines. Those things are were built to last which is why we still have the attraction. So yeah, so I I love both parks. They're both magical in their own way. It's unfortunate that Roy Disney um, sort of, you know, after Walt died, Walt didn't want to repeat. You know, first of all, you know, he didn't want to repeat an exact duplicate of Disneyland. And in fact, Roy had to convince him, we needed a theme park if you want to build your city. 
because we have to generate revenue. And we need to bring people on property if they're going to head over to the international area of Epcot in order to generate money as well, uh, which was the international area was going to be shopping and restaurants. It was going to be open to the public. But Fantasyland was going to be completely different. They're going to be different attractions. And then afterwards, after Walt passed, and Roy got a little nervous, was Walt Disney World going to be popular to East Coast folks? So he made their attractions. They were already tried and true, you know, and popular in Disneyland. And so he said, just build the same thing at um, Magic Kingdom. So at least the Imagineers built different versions of yeah. them. And you had that wonderful Mr. Toad attraction that had two different experiences. And what a shame that it's gone. You know, looking so back that, at, at Mr. Toad, and, and how they were able to expand, you know, within the last 10 years. I just wish it would have happened decades earlier. That would have been able to save it. Winnie the Pooh could have yes. gone deeper into, into Fantasyland if they were mm-hmm. thinking ahead that much. But what you're talking about, as far as uh, Disneyland having that Walt feel, and I agree with you. Um, I also, though, think that uh, along with your podcast, uh, every park that's been built since Disneyland has does have that Disney inspiration or Disney feel Absolutely. to it, you know? So it all does kind of tie back to uh, the men who started it all, Walt and Roy, to me. Absolutely. I agree with you. I've been to all the theme parks. I've yeah. been very lucky. And I agree. They all have Walt and Roy's touch in them. Even Shanghai, which is the most unique of all the parks. It still has the Disney touch in there. It's very unique. There's a familiarity to every one of the parks, but each of them has their own charm. We love connecting with Walt. Um, It's too bad Craig couldn't be with us. I can tell you this, and please pass this along. My 15-year-old son is the biggest Craig Williams fan in the world. Oh, gosh. Okay, what do you have to tell me? What does he like about Craig? He likes the fact that Craig is Craig. You know, he he never hides his true emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Craig shares his experiences and he likes to tie everything back into whatever you guys are talking about. You know, one thing that I appreciate about Craig that my son probably doesn't even understand. Craig produces like 150 shows a week. I mean, he is, he does. I don't know when he sleeps. Yeah. I absolutely don't. The Diz Unplugged Network is is pretty large, and Craig has mm-hmm. his hand in all the shows, I think, or pretty much all of them. And he, he shoots those does. wonderful videos. You know, we we are there's nothing I can talk about right now, but we're we're gonna be making changes to connecting with Walt in the new year. And we're already starting to experiment a little. So if those go out, yeah, Craig's probably gonna end up doing more for our show. <laughs> what I like about Craig on Connecting with Walt is you also see it or hear a side of him that maybe you don't on the other shows. And um, and I think more of his humor comes out. He and I have we both have a I don't know sarcastic sense of humor. <laughs> I tend to keep mine in check as the host, but when we're off mic, um, we we tend to um, let it. Go, I, I could see that. I could see that creeping in a little <laughs> bit. And I also think he appreciates uh, learning about history. And, and um, mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, on a weekly basis, he kind of just sits back and, and listens to you 
talk about all these things that make Disney what it is today. It has a strong foundation, and, and it's because of people and the places that you talk about that, that they are succeeding still today. Oh, yeah. I, and, you know, we have that little segment we do this week in Disney history. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how Craig has that much history in his head. I would not do as well if it was reversed because I'm just at that point. I don't keep those min- the minutia <laughs> in my head that he does with dates. Like he goes, oh, 1971? Oh, that must be. And, and he knows that obscure pavilion or that, that it's what film opened that year. I, I just don't know how he does it. You know what? I, mean, I appreciate yeah. when he does that. He, he, puts himself back in that situation. If it's, if it's before his birth, it's just from what he's read and watched. But Mm -hmm. I, I've listened to him say, Oh, 1993. Well, I was doing this at that point, or I was in college or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and, and uh, here's, here's what was going on in my life. So I remember seeing that movie with my sister. That's how I think he kind of holds it all together. I think that way as well. And I think that helps our listeners connect with us Mm -hmm. and they get to know us as well. And that's really important. Now, do you all have different areas of interest in Disney history? Because, like, I know from our listeners, some are really into the theme parks. And a majority of our listeners, it's really about Walt. Yeah, I'm a musician, so I'm coming from that angle. I've been able to meet and actually work with Richard Sherman, which is just, that's like Mecca for me. Uh, but also a lot of park history, love the park history. And John and I met through our daughters um, who were in school together. Or no, it was Evan and my oldest daughter um, is how... We're is all how, in Washington, Illinois. Uh, we're just... I was going to ask you We're social distancing right now, so... Yeah. And so John and I actually sat next to each other on a school field trip that we were chaperoning. And it was a three-hour trip to Chicago, up and back, and... You know, I could have sat on the bus for another day <laughs> talking and comparing notes. And You don't meet many people in Washington, Illinois, who know who, you know, Carl Stalling is. Stalling is. <laughs> interested in an episode yeah. on him. I thought that's unusual. You don't see many podcasting an episode on Carl Stalling. <laughs> and then, John, are you a, you're a history guy, too. I know you love the parks. Yeah, I, I would say historically, yeah, I'll, I'll read anything about that, but uh, the parks specifically, and actually um, some of the work you guys have done on the parks that never were uh, is, is so interesting. You know, we're Midwesterners here, and how cool would that have been for us to go to St. Louis to see a Disney park, but it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, so, you know, between that and the resorts, that's if I had to pick, you know, my my lifeblood that that's I, I love going and, and looking at the architecture and and studying even just the resorts themselves and you know Michael I don't I don't think I have a, a direct you know it probably movies probably movies I mean I, I, there's so much about Disney history that I am just infatuated with but I think more than anything else the movies inspire the other things right I mean that's where Walt started and that's you know, that mm-hmm. led to other other avenues. So that's that would be my top interest. But I love everything. Yeah, well, and that's why Fantasyland, I always say, is the realm most closely associated with Walt because that's where all his characters that he created live. Yep. Yeah, and it was so fitting that that was the land that he sort of went at the end of the, of the – you know, ceremony that was broadcast on July 17, 1955. That's the land he enters 
you know, at the end of the show. Yeah, he and uh, well. Art, Art Linkletter, right? Art Linkletter, and I think... yes, are trying to drag their microphone <laughs> <Yeah>. cables behind <laughs> them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that scene. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's great. Well, Michael, we yeah. could talk to you for hours. Please, at some point, we want to have you back. We want to get Craig on the show as well. And we Absolutely. To... I know he's very disappointed right now. For multiple reasons. For <laughs> yeah, he's having some, some technical <laughs> issues. Um, yes. But, Michael, thank you so much, and thanks for joining us, and we look forward to listening to Connecting with Wald every week. Thank you. I look forward to listening to the Hyperion Hub every week as well. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We thank Michael Bowling for joining us. And remember, that's Connecting with Walt. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at com or send us a voice-recorded message. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please go rate and review us so more people can find the show. Guys, have a great week. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub.